Good morning. Would you join me in James chapter 1? I consider James to be the most practical book in the Bible. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James has been called the New Testament man from Missouri because he doesn't say, tell me what you believe. He says, show me what you believe. That's why our logo for this book is Faith with Feet. And so it's not surprising that James begins his book by jumping into one of the most practical areas of life, trials, problems, difficulties, in verses 2 to 12. And having finished that section, now he's going to introduce an even more practical area of life in verses 13 to 18. It's so practical that we're going to take several weeks to slow down and walk through this. And to show you what he's talking about, look at verse 14. But each one is tempted. Anyone want to argue with that statement? We can all testify to that. Everyone is tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says temptation is common to man. Temptation is the common denominator. Temptation is the common experience of every human being, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. One ancient writer said, even when we're saved, we must remember that our baptism did not drown our flesh. We all face the battle of temptation. And just as our response to trials is a mark of the genuineness of our faith, our response to temptation is a mark of the genuineness of our faith. Now, interestingly, James uses the same Greek word, parosmos, for both trials in verses 2 and 12, and temptations in verses 13 and 14. Now that might get a little bit confusing if you read it in the Greek language. Because in verse 13 at the end, he says, God does not tempt anyone. God does not parosmos anyone. But in verses 2 to 12, we saw that God has His fingerprints all over your trials, your parosmos. In fact, a few, few pages earlier in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, we're told that when God told Abraham to offer up Isaac, He was testing him, and the word is parosmos. God parosmoses us, but He doesn't parosmos us. How do we explain that? Well, in verses 2 to 12, he's talking about trials. In verses 13 to 18, he's talking about temptations. And obviously, parosmos has two entirely different meanings. Trials come from without. Temptations come from within. Trials are something you fall into. Temptation is something you are enticed into. Trials have a positive purpose in your life. Temptation has a negative purpose in your life. 
You say, well, why didn't God just use two entirely different words? It would have made it so much easier. Well, I think the answer is that these two concepts are so closely connected that God used the same word. You see, a trial that comes from the outside typically penetrates to the inside. If it doesn't, it's not much of a trial. And trials that come from the outside are often associated with temptations that arise from the inside. When you're in the midst of a trial, God is saying to you, stay under it. Be patient. I'm building your character. And what is Satan saying? Forget about character. This hurts. Find an exit door even if over the door it says sin. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham obeys God by going to the promised land. He hardly has his tent pegs in the ground when a famine hits the land. That's a trial. With that trial comes a temptation. Abraham says, hmm, I could go down to Egypt and lie to Pharaoh and tell him that my wife is my sister. I could find an exit door out of this trial, Mark sin. In Genesis chapter 16, Sarah says, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. I am barren. That's a trial. What does Sarah do? She looks around for a shortcut. And she says, I know what I'll do. I'll talk Abraham into having sexual relations with my servant Hagar, and we'll have a child that way. Sin. Temptations are usually attached to trials. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're a student here. You've got a test tomorrow. You forgot about it? You got a test tomorrow. Somebody in your family gets sick and they go into the hospital. Instead of studying as you plan to do today, you have to be at the hospital caring about your loved one who's ill. You spend the whole day at the hospital. You get to go home tonight. You come home. You're getting ready to go to bed. And you realize you haven't studied for the test. That's a trial. What's the temptation? Well, since I didn't get a chance to study, and it wasn't my fault, I'll make a cheat sheet. Ever find yourself in that situation? You have financial difficulties? You've lost your wallet or you've lost your shirt? That's a trial. What's the temptation? I could take something out of the cash drawer, and who would know? And your temptation wants to justify that because you say, this is a trial, I'm in a difficult circumstances, and so it would be okay for me to cheat on my income tax. Let me give you a definition of temptation. Temptation is the enticement to do wrong by the promise of pleasure or gain. 
the enticement to do wrong by the promise of pleasure or gain. Temptation motivates you to be bad by promising you something good. And our natural tendency, when we give in to temptation, is to make excuses. Our tendency when we, we fail in the area of temptation is to blame other people. And James anticipates that. So notice what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You say, well, I would never blame God for my temptation. No. Think about it. Here's how this works. You say, well, I wouldn't have sinned if I hadn't had that trouble in my life, that difficulty in my life, that trial in my life. Well, who brought the trial into your life? Who allowed the trial to come into your life? God did. So when you blame the circumstances and recognize the circumstances are in God's timing, then you're really blaming God. One I hear a lot is, I hear people say, I asked God not to let me do that again. And he didn't answer my prayer. Because here I am, I did it again. Who are you blaming? You're blaming God. Or you may say, this is just the way I am. I have an addictive personality. Well, who made you? God. So you're blaming God. James says, when you fail in the air of temptation, don't blame God. Because God doesn't tempt you. You know, this is not a new approach. Adam did the same thing. When Adam committed the first sin, God came looking for him and found him. And you remember what Adam said? Genesis 3.12. He said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. So he's blaming Eve, but he's not really just blaming Eve. He's saying, the woman you gave me. I'd never even seen a woman. And I went to sleep one night, woke up, and I was married to one. It's not my fault. James says, when you're tempted to do evil, don't blame God. Why not? Because God doesn't lead people into sin. And to confirm that, notice what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. He has no vulnerability to sin. Evil holds no allurement for God. There is no inner enticement inside of God toward evil. Now, Satan tried to prove that wrong, but instead, when he tempted Jesus throughout his lifetime, he proved that to be right. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without 
sin. Now, what's his point here? Well, I think his point is this. He says, when you're tempted, don't blame God because God can't be tempted and doesn't tempt anyone. You see, for someone to tempt you, to someone, for someone to tempt you into sin, they have to first delight in sin. The person who delights in sin is the person trying to draw you in. Satan does that. People do that. Jesus said men love what? The darkness. They love the darkness, so they try to draw you into the darkness. For someone to want to draw you, entice you into sin, they have to delight in sin. Well, God doesn't delight in sin. God only delights in purity and holiness. So there is no capacity in God to tempt you. God tests us for our good. He never tempts us to bring out evil. He allows us to go through trials like Job did to bring out the gold in our life. He may test you like he did Abraham and say, I want you to give up your son. But he does that for our good. He tests us for our good. He never tempts us to do evil. So when temptation comes into your life, don't blame God. You say, well, who do I blame? Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Did you get that? Each one by his own lust. My temptation comes from within. I hear people make a lot of excuses. If they're not blaming God, they're blaming society. You know, we live in a tough day. It's hard out there. Temptation is worse today than it ever was before. Young people have it harder today because there's so much temptation around. I don't know how they survive. We make all kinds of excuses. A school teacher in Connecticut said if Booth Tarkington were to write 17 magazine today, he would have to call it 12. Ethel Barrett said kids are getting older, younger. Yes, we live in a permissive society, but we can't blame society. We also can't do like Flip Wilson and say, the devil made me do it. Or like the church lady who, who used to say, could it be Satan? That's what Eve did, right? Adam blamed her and God. Who did she blame? She turned around and said, the serpent made me do it. Listen, you can't blame the devil and you can't blame the world. Where does the blame lie? It lies with me. Verse 14, his own lust. It's like Pogo said, we have met the enemy and it is us. Listen carefully. Temptation would be helpless if there was nothing in you to which it could appeal. 
Temptation is just noise until it strikes a chord inside of you. I heard a fellow say the other day, he said, I, I, I was in St. Louis and I drove by Krispy Kreme and it was calling my name. You know, the hot light was on. And it made me turn in and, and get a dozen donuts. Well, Krispy Kreme may have been calling your name, but it didn't make you turn in. You see, you made that decision. There is nothing outside of ourselves that is strong enough to make us sin. There is nothing outside of ourselves, even Satan himself, that can make us sin. It takes an agreement on our part. Now, the word lust is an interesting word. We usually think of lust as having a negative con connotation. Actually, in the Bible, lust is morally neutral. In fact, lust is a word used in Scripture in Galatians 5.17 of the Holy Spirit. It says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So the word lust just means strong desire. Lust in and of itself is not wrong. God has created certain strong desires inside of us, and they are good. God has given us, for instance, the desire to eat. We get hungry. Say, oh, I think I forgot to eat. Well, your body reminds you. You have a desire that says, I should eat. Eating is proper. But when that desire gets out of place, it can become sin when it's gluttony. So that desire which God has developed to keep me alive, which tells me I need to eat, can be put out of balance and actually become sin when I overdo it. God has given you the desire to sleep. Some of you are cashing in on that right now. God-given desire. We need that sleep. We have to have We'll die without it. We get tired. We sleep. But if you overdo sleep, the Bible says what? You're a sluggard. You've, you've taken a good desire and used it in a wrong way. God gives us a social desire. We have a social need to interact with people. We get lonely when we don't do that. But even that social desire can be out of place in our lives and we can live off of peer pressure and what people care about us. And it gets out of balance. God has given us a desire for sex. Created by God. It's a beautiful thing in the context of marriage, the way God designed it. When we take it out of that context and use it in the wrong way, it's immorality. And to show how that works in our lives to get it out of place, James uses a couple terms here in verse 14 that are sportsman terms. The first in verse 14 is, you're carried away. 
Now, that's not a forceful term. It's not a violent word. In fact, it's the same word Jesus used in John 12, 32, when he said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. It's the idea of drawing someone. We are drawn to Jesus by the cross. And you are drawn to sin by your lust and temptation. See, this term was also used of a hunter. A hunter would use maybe the scent, a certain scent that he knew an animal would be attracted by, or meat or food that an animal would be attracted by, and he would draw that animal to himself by the bait. I haven't, I'm not much of a hunter, but uh, one time I went hunting uh, with, a, with a couple guys in this church. I won't name their names because I'm not sure if this was even legal. We, we, went, we went coyote hunting at night with infrared lights. And I was a, a rookie, so I'm just going along. I've got a gun, and it's nighttime. And, and uh, the way we enticed the coyotes was with a tape player playing the sound of a rabbit squealing. So this noise is going on and it's set up to draw the coyote into our trap. That's the way sin operates in our lives. And then the second term is also a sportsman term and that's the word enticed. It's a fishing term. It means to lure with a bait. Now, I don't know much about fishing either. But I do know that to catch a fish, you have to put the worm on the hook. I know that much. I know that fish don't go around looking for hooks. They're looking for worms. You know, a fish is down in the lake and he's swimming around. He's comfortable. He's safe. He's doing whatever fish do. And the fisherman drops the worm into the water. And the fish looks at the worm and says, Wow, that looks great. And he bites on the worm and he gets more than the worm. He is lured, hooked, reeled in, and fried. There are a lot of potential bait in our lives. There's sensual stimuli, things we see or hear. There are material things. There are things like fame and status and position which we desire to have. See, a good fisherman knows that you use different bait to catch different fish. If you want to catch a bluegill, maybe you use a worm. If you want to catch a bass, maybe you use a minnow. If you want to catch a trout, maybe you use a fly. Same is true of people. We don't all respond to the same bait. 
two people can be standing together and see the same thing. One is enticed and the other is yawning. You go shopping with your wife. She sees a purse. She's all excited. You look at the price tag and go, we could buy a set of luggage for that. There may be someone in here who is enticed by the sin of homosexuality. See, that holds nothing. That, that repulses me. One bait may attract one person, may not attract another. Good fisherman also knows that he may have to use different bait on different days to attract the same fish. You see, what enticed me yesterday may not be what's enticing me today. In fact, in your life, two months ago, it might have been pornography. You've had victory over pornography since then, and guess what it is now? You're thinking, I beat pornography. I did pretty good. It was pornography two months ago. Now it's pride. I can handle that. I can do this thing. You see, he's going to come with different bait at different times. But whatever the bait that lures me, James says, I am enticed by my own lust. When my lust says, wow, that looks good. Now, where's the fisherman the whole time? He's up on the bank. He's out of sight. He's in the boat. He may be jiggling the line. And his entire intent is to hide himself and hide the consequences from the fish. The fish thinks, I'm getting a juicy meal, when in fact, He's becoming a juicy meal. And Satan is like the fisherman. He's always going to hide the consequences. He's going to show you the worm. He's not going to show you the hook. Remember the first sin? He came to Eve and he said to Eve, you will be like God. You eat this fruit, you will be like God. That sounds wonderful. He didn't say anything about being kicked out of the garden. He didn't say anything about weeds or sweat or pain. He didn't say anything about one son killing the other. He hid the consequences and he said, you're going to be like God. The hook is always covered with a promise that says, this will satisfy you. Whatever your area of temptation, that hook is always covered with a promise that says, this will satisfy you. And temptation occurs when my desire is drawn to the bait. Now, how does this work? Well, look at verse 15. Then when lust 
has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now he switches analogies here from hunting and fishing to childbirth. You see the terms here? Conceived, gives birth, and accomplished. That means full grown. And this is a fitting analogy because for many of us, the area of temptation we struggle with most is in this sensual, sexual area. He says when lust has conceived, it has a baby. And that baby is an ugly baby. That baby is sin. And when that baby grows up and becomes full grown, it's death. It's death. You say, well, what kind of death is he talking about here? Well, he doesn't really tell us. He just says death in general. But let me tell you something about death. Death is always connected with the idea of separation. Physical death is the separation of your body from your spirit. Spiritual death is the separation of your spirit from God. And eternal death is the separation of your body and your spirit from God forever. But sin always leads to death. It always causes separation. That was true of Adam in the garden. When he sinned, death came. Separation from God spiritually. Separation of body and spirit physically. In fact, there's a somber verse in 1 Timothy 5.6 where Paul says, The widow who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. She gives herself to wanton pleasure. If you asked her, she would say, I'm living it up. God says she's dead because there's separation of her from God. Now look back at verse 15. I want to ask you a question. When does sin actually occur? Now notice this. Sin doesn't occur when you're tempted. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in all areas like we are. He never sinned. So temptation is not sin. And sin doesn't occur when you simply have a strong desire. You could be really hungry this morning. Your stomach might start growling. That's not sin. That's embarrassing. But that's not sin. That desire is not sin. The temptation is not sin. So when does sin occur? Well, James tells us in verse 15 that sin occurs at conception. When my will consents to have an illicit relationship with my desire, that's when sin is conceived. You see, sin doesn't just happen at the moment it comes out into the open. Sin happens 
in the recesses of my heart. And that's why Jesus, when He was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard that. But let me tell you this. Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, every look is not wrong. The first look is temptation. If you see a woman who is not your wife and she is seductive and attractive and you look at her and you see her, that's the temptation. She's the worm. But when you willfully choose to look with the intention of lusting after her, Jesus says, that's adultery of the heart. And that is sin. When the will and the desire come together. You say, but Dan, that's just a little sin. If I think about something I want to do, it's just a little sin. I never intend to do it. That's like saying you're a little pregnant. Because that's the analogy here. Someone who's a little pregnant is going to get a lot pregnant. You can wear baggy clothes for a while to hide it, but it's going to come out. And James says, when sin gets started in your life, even in that little embryonic stage, it has a life of its own. And if it's unattended, it will continue to grow and develop and ultimately be born in your life. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. There's only one way to terminate that process. And that is repentance. There is only one way. Once sin gets a hold in your life, there's only one way to terminate that. And that is repentance. Apart from repentance, it's going to grow and develop just like a baby in the womb and birth sin and lead to death. If you wait till sin is full grown in your life, you're going to have a very hard time dealing with it. You need to deal with it in the womb. That's why this is the one area where you need to be pro-abortion. You follow me? The illustration is giving birth. Lust, sin, death. You need to be pro-abortion. You need to deal with it while it's in the womb. Now notice the progression here. Lust leads to sin, leads to death. LSD. Lust, sin, death. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Temptation always progresses this way in a person's life. Let me give you one illustration. Go back to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. 
Children of Israel go to Jericho and the walls of Jericho fall down. The next battle is the battle of Ai. They lost the battle of Ai. And God narrowed the problem down to one guy by the name of Achan. And he admitted that he sinned in Joshua chapter 7. You read it in verse 20. He says, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Notice verse 21, what he did. When I saw, mark that, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. When I saw it, that's the bait. Then he says, then I coveted them. That's the lust. I saw them in the rubble and I coveted. I lusted. And then what's the next thing he says? And I took them. That's the sin. I saw them. I lusted after them. And my will created an illicit union with my desire and I sinned and I took them. And when you get down to verse 25, he tells us Achan was stoned with stones. That's the death. I saw the bait. I lusted. I took. And death was the outcome. Let me tell you something. Sin is never an event in your life. It's always a process. It's never an isolated event in your life. It's always a process. You never do anything without thinking about it. When you look at sin in your life and you've done something and you go, how did I ever do this? It goes back to unchecked lust in your life. That's where it always starts. Lust leads to sin. Sin produces death. When you go to lunch today at Red Lobster, the fish of the day, you know what the famous last words of the fish of the day is? I'm not going to bite the worm, I'm just going to nibble on it. Maybe those are your famous last words. I'm just flirting with sin. I'm just going to nibble on sin. I'm not going to take a big bite. I'm not going to bite in and get the hook. I'm just going to flirt with it. I'm just going to nibble. can't do that with lust. Because if you try that, you will find yourself hooked, reeled in, and fried. That's why James says in the next verse, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived into thinking that God set you up because God never tempts you. Do not be deceived into thinking that your problem is God or Satan or the world. No, it's you. Your biggest problem is you. And don't be deceived into thinking 
Because sin only happens when it's visible in your life, when it comes out into the open. Sin begins at conception. And the battle is won or lost in the mind. That's why Jesus said we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or Paul said that. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It happens in your thought life. And next week we're going to come back to this passage. We're going to give some practical ways to handle temptation and really bring it home to give us ways to deal with with the problem in ourselves. This morning we're going to close with communion. This sermon doesn't lead right into communion necessarily, but if you look at the next verse, verse 17, he says, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. God doesn't tempt you. What He does is gives you every good gift. And verse 18 says, that in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. And he's talking about birth. He says, sin, lust leads to sin, leads to death in your life. That's a birth process. That's not God's plan for you. God's plan is to bring you forth into new creatures in Him. And how does He accomplish that? By the cross. So the question is, am I giving birth to sin and death in my life, or am I seeing God give birth to me into a new creature, walking in the ways that He desires for me? How does that happen? At the cross. It happens at the, at the cross where I come in faith the first time to come out of darkness into light. And it happens for you if you're a believer and you need to repent of something. You still come to the foot of the cross. You say, God, I have been nibbling on the worm. I've been nibbling on this bait for a long time. I've been flirting with this in my life, and I'm starting to see the consequences of sin coming out. And I know that if I don't check this thing, if I don't repent of this thing, it's going to give birth in my life. It's going to come out and be an ugly thing that leads to death. So as we take the bread and the cup and remember the cross today, wherever you're at, your answer is in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, you can come to Him in faith today. If you are a believer, you can come to Him and find that forgiveness and repentance. Turn around and turn away from that sin to life in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that as we talk about temptation, we realize that this would be a very negative message apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. The One who came and died in our place, died for our sin to give us forgiveness and to give us the power to walk in your spirit. And Lord, as we talk about this subject, I pray that as we take the bread and take the cup and remember the cross, that you would give us the perspective to realize what it costs you to pay for our sin. And today, to surrender ourselves afresh, to repent of those areas that we're flirting with in our lives. We know what they are. You know what they are. Lord, that we would surrender those today and come fully to you to allow you to work your work in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.